Welcome to this edition of City Talk. I think you will enjoy this program as much as I will and also have enjoyed uh, reading a book called American Jews and American Baseball. The author? America's what, Game. America's Game. I knew I'd get that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I got the name of the author right, Larry Rutman. Larry, I'm glad that you still call baseball America's Game. Well, After I think it is America's years. game. And, uh, you know, Ken, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me on. Uh, and I know how entrenched you have been in the radio <laughs> industry for so long and how highly you're thought of. And I know all about the Massachusetts broadcasters uh, recognizing you. And, uh, you know, I was anxious to meet you. And I, I think the listeners should know that I come to you through the Perkins Institute for the Blind over in Watertown. Mm -hmm. And that uh, my wife Lois and I are contributors over there, and uh, we know some of the people. Uh, it's a wonderful institution. Um, when um, Peter uh, Stephen Rothstein was the president, he now is over at the JFK Library, we got to know the people over there, and uh, they suggested that I'd enjoy being on a show with you, mm -hmm. and I'm sure I will. Well, I appreciate that, and I hope you feel the same way after we get finished. Now, um, what inspired you to write this book? Uh, yeah, to, um, what inspired me? Well, it is America's game. Um, I'll tell you why. Because I feel that way. Well, first of all, I'm you know I'm going to be 87 in February, so I've God been I've been around for a while, and uh, I think that um, it, it certainly was America's game when I first came to the game back in the 1930s. My father took me to my first game when I was five, and a, a game between the Yankees and the Red Sox, and there I was out in, in the outfield, roped off. There were no bullpens then. Ted Williams had not yet arrived, and it certainly was America's game. And, you know, I think it is still America's game, even though football uh, draws so many people uh, and interest. Uh, I think it's a violent game. I'm not a violent person. I'd like to follow the Patriots, but uh, <laughs> as far as the uh, – and Tom Brady's a great player and we have a great coach. There's no question about it. I know Bob Kraft. He's from my town of Brookline. I've interviewed him. But still, um, as far as baseball is concerned, nobody remembers who took them to their first football game, Ken. Everybody remembers who took them to their first baseball game. Exactly. And usually it was their father, just like in my case. Yep, and mine as well. I – Remember, I went to the first minor league game I ever went to. I grew up in Rochester, New York, and uh, the Rochester ball team played Havana back in the days when they had an international league team in Havana, Cuba, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. The pitcher for Rochester was a knuckleballer named Lynn Lovenguth, and I, like I said, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And and Bud Selig, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but Bud Selig says the exact same thing that you did, that everybody remembers their first major league ball game, which is I think is, is a very interesting point. And the second one that I went to uh, was with my father again, and I think that was in, in 1940 when Ted Williams was a sophomore. Mm -hmm. And we were – this is in my memoir that I spoke to you about, in my memoir of Fenway Park that I wrote. 
And uh, we was my father and I were sitting up in the grandstand, maybe in the twentieth row or something like that. And it was a double header, and some guy against the White Sox, and some guy came running up the aisle, and he said, "I'm through with these guys. They're terrible," <laughs> which a lot of people have done, but they always come back. And he said, "Do you want my tickets down below?" And we and I, my father said, "Yeah." So we went down and we sat in the second row of the box seats. Wow! And in the second game was tied eight to eight. Uh, and uh, Ted Williams came up and hit a top spin line drive single to right, and Jimmy Fox, the beast, came yep. up and whacked one into the screen in deep left center to win the ball game. And then when I got to the University of Massachusetts um, several years later in uh, 1948, I said, did I really remember that, or is that a figment of my imagination? <laughs> so I went to the stacks and uh, became acquainted with stacks of books in libraries. That was good. And I looked mm -hmm. it up. They had old New York Times. And sure enough, Fox hits walk-off home run and saying, I said, I remembered <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Now, and that's Jimmy Fox as well as Hank Greenberg, the, a gentleman that you write quite extensively about in your book, almost tied and broke Babe Ruth's 60 home run record yeah, well, you in know, 1927. Hank, right. Well, Hank Greenberg was, you know, he's really my favorite. Uh, well, Ted Williams was the guy that was my hero when I was a kid. Yep. But, you know, all Jewish kids knew about Hank Greenberg, the ones that go back who are in their 80s now. And I consider that Hank Greenberg uh, really was the greatest Jew of the 20th century because he was so much more than a baseball player. I mean, he... You know, he's, he respected his who he was, even though he wasn't particularly religious after coming from an Orthodox family. And uh, he um, stayed out in his sophomore season, I think it was, didn't play uh, on Yom Kippur. And, uh, and so he respected that. He was in Detroit where there was a lot of anti-Semitism at that time uh, from Father Coughlin and also from... Henry Ford, and uh, also the Nazis were rising at that time. But he was right there to enlist in the service before the war, served four and a half years, then came back and uh, and won the uh, 45 uh, pennant for the Tigers with uh, a Grand Slam home run on the last day of the season, challenged, as you say, Babe Ruth's record. Uh, he was a handsome guy. He went against the sort of ingrained idea that the Jews are only smart, but they, they're they not fit to be athletes. He was 6'4", <laughs> handsome. The women loved him, and he could hit 58 home runs. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah he, was, he, he, he was something else. But was it – now, he went and played part of the end of his career with the Pirates. Yeah. Did that hurt him after having spent so many years with Detroit? Well, I think that he was hurt when they released him because they released him after the 1946 season in which he, in a late spurt, beat Ted Williams for the uh, home run championship by hitting 44 to Ted's 38. Uh, and he had a, you know, very good season, but he was, you know, 33. And I think they figured that maybe his mobility in the field was challenged. Anyway, they, you know, at that time there was no free agency. They released him. But the last season he spent uh, with Pittsburgh, he did, he you know he had 25 home runs. They built a garden for him in left field, like they did for Ted in right field at Fenway Park. Mm -hmm. But he developed a friendship with Ralph Kina, and he really tutored Ralph Kina, who they wanted to send back to the minor leagues. Bing Crosby was one of the owners and of, of the Pirates that particular year, because he was striking out a lot and wasn't hitting. And Hank went to the front office and he said. 
I'm, you know, leave him here. I'm going to tutor him. And they, he taught him a lot of things at batting practice. He said, Ralph, you don't have to hit it out of the ballpark, you know, a million miles out of the ballpark. You just got to hit it over the fence. Can you believe that from the end of May of that year to the end of the season, kind of hit 49 home runs to end up with 51, the beginning of uh, six or seven home run championships in in the uh, National League. Um, but the real thing in my book that I strike, uh, that I uh, comment about, I interviewed Ralph Kine. He was a wonderful guy, very gentle, very nice. And I interviewed him in a delicatessen where he lived in Palm Beach. <laughs> and uh, he's uh, he, he talked about his lifetime friendship with Hank Greenberg. They were fast friends from the time of that season until – uh, Greenberg died in the in the 1980s. Uh, I think Hank was best man at one of his. At, I think kind of was married two or three times, and he was the best man at one of his weddings. It's a story of friendship, and that's a wonderful story. And I think that's a big Jewish value too: family and friendship. I, I loved Kiner as a broadcaster. I used to listen to him when he was with the Mets with uh, Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy, and I thought that was a great tandem. The three of them. But I loved Kiner's work. Well, you know, you would because, you know, I heard him broadcast here and there. And to sit and talk with him, you know, like I said to him, well, Ralph, um, let me, at the end of the, inter the interview, we were eating lunch, but I had the recorder on, the digital voice recorder. And mm -hmm. um, I said to him, uh, Ralph, um, how about a few pictures? And uh, so he, he posed. Uh, he's already in his 80s at that time. And I said, Ralph, why don't you, um, why don't you strike a pose like you're facing the pitcher and he put his hands up over his right shoulder as though he was holding a bat. Mm -hmm. And I took the picture, and that's the one that appears in the book. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, see, this book is called American Jews in America's Game. Mm -hmm. Well, Jewish appears once in that title, America twice. The book is really about America and American Judaism, about people, about baseball. It's about a lot of things that mean a lot to me. And uh, I think that, uh, that Ralph Kiner was an exemplar of those kind of values and uh, so think how we, we talked a few minutes ago about famous people who get sold on themselves so that they become obnoxious. <laughs> well, you know, Ralph Kiner was totally the opposite of that. And um, he, he, was, he was quite a guy. And yeah, go ahead. Ken. You know, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you know, there's a wonderful story that, uh, you know, uh, Ralph came from California from a mining town that's now extinct. And when he was a uh, sophomore player at the time that Hank Greenberg played with him in Pittsburgh, he was pretty, well, he, he, I would say that he was unsophisticated. He, he had to go to an event where he needed a tuxedo, so he hired a tuxedo and put on brown shoes. And Ralph said to him, I mean, Hank said to him, no, no, you can't do that, Ralph. you got to have black shoes to go with a tuxedo. And uh, I, this story is told in my book. And um, so then... Um, he taught him, you know, some of the some of the finer points of being a celebrity. So two years later, there is Ralph Kiner, who was very handsome when he was young. It is a picture in the book uh, of him taking out Elizabeth Taylor when she was 19 to an event in Hollywood. And that picture is in the book. I found it hidden away in the Hall of Fame someplace <laughs> so that um, – well, I guess Elizabeth Taylor converted to Judaism late in her life. But the fact of the matter in this book is that of the of the hundreds of people indexed, maybe 25% are Jewish and the rest are not. And of the 
85 illustrations, maybe a third of them were of people not Jewish. So I want to say to anybody who's listening, it's not just a story about Judaism. That certainly is a major part of it, but it's about so much more. It's about our country and a baseball and the best things that happen or have happened in our country. Who, of all the athletes that you interviewed and sports writers, who's the one that you walk away and just say, wow? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, uh, Hank Greenberg was the only deceased person that I interviewed because, uh, and I did that through his son and his daughter. His daughter, Alma, and, right? And Aviva Kempner, who did the film documentary. Yep. And Ira Burkow, who did a uh, uh, a book on him. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. There's also a story about him in the book. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that, uh, and Ralph Kiner. Um, so he was, I never met Hank Greenberg, so... I watched him play. I saw mm-hmm. him play in 1945 when he played with the Tigers against the Red Sox. There's a story there, too. But I, but amazingly, there were a lot of people who impressed me. I would say this, that, you know, some people think athletes are not bright. That's ridiculous. <laughs> They're very bright. And uh, I think that um, th- there were a lot of players that I interviewed that I thought were very good. And atypically for Jewish players— or for Jewish people who are not known for being handsome necessarily, a lot of these guys were really good looking. I mean, like Sean Green was uh-huh. movie star handsome, and uh, uh, Brad Osmus is my wife. Yep. You know, Brad Osmus came and did a, a show with me down in Wellfleet where I have a summer home. And my wife fell in love with him. He's so nice. And, <laughs> and he's so handsome. And uh, Kevin Euclid wasn't so handsome, but there were, there were other guys. <laughs> it was, and, uh, you know, Al Rosen, who, who was ah. a great star, who looked like Paul Newman. And I interviewed him when he was in his 80s in California. But uh, he just died recently. And Al Rosen, she really should be in the Hall of Fame. He was a great player and a great executive. But you know who impressed me the most? The two guys that impressed me the most weren't players uh, were Marvin Miller ah. and Don Fear. Now, Marvin Miller, you know, changed. He's, I mean, the guy that used to broadcast for the Dodgers, uh, Red Barber. Red Barber, yeah. said the most important three people in baseball history were Babe Ruth, obviously, Jackie <laughs> Robinson, obviously, and Marvin Miller, because Marvin Miller changed the economic face of the game so the players make these enormous sums. And by the way, the owners make much more, too, so that by winning free agency. So the owners demonized him, and they're still demonizing him because he should be in the Hall of Fame and has not been elected to the Hall of Fame. And the fact of the matter is that, uh, and he was not a lawyer. He came up through the Steelworkers Union. He was the right-hand economist helper to Walter Ruther, who was the famous labor leader at that particular time. Mm -hmm. But he knew the players were getting a raw deal. They should have free agency. They weren't able to bargain properly for their services. Even Babe Ruth and Ted Williams, who got paid a lot, would have been paid multiples of that. (laughs) And uh, so so that when I went to see him in his retirement, he was already 90 years old, Um, he, um, I said to myself, what kind of a guy is this going to be? Because they demonized him. He, he's, he's, uh, he wants to be the commissioner. He's uh, a nasty guy. He's one of these, uh, you know, the, 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 the hidden agenda was he's one of those Jewish guys from Brooklyn that are really a pain in the rear end (laughs) and you can't trust him. So I meet this gentle guy Mm -hmm. who's like a grandfather. So I'm, I'm saying to myself, 
this is Marvin Miller? And he, <laughs> he, he, and he answered every question. So we, and he had a doctor's appointment. He was so interested in our conversation, he signaled to his wife, a Ph.D. professor, <laughs> uh, to break the appointment so he could stay with me. We talked literally for three hours, and I never shut off the, the machine. He was – apparently he liked the questions I was asking him, and I loved talking to him. So at first I said, this, he's a nice guy. And then I said, he would be a good friend. Then I said, he's like an uncle. <laughs> and, and, and then I, he's like a grandfather. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is from that one meeting, we developed a friendship that, that lasted from that day to the day of his death five years later. He was an amazing guy. So then I meet Don Fear, and Don Fear says, well, I suppose you're seeing me just because – he was a different guy altogether. But uh, it, Don Fear, you see, he said, I suppose you're seeing me because you saw Marvin Miller and now you just got to complete it, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, no, not at all, Don. I'm seeing you because, I, because you've done wonderful things for the players after Marvin Miller. So you're a, an important guy and I want to talk to you. And so he – painstakingly over a two-hour period explained what he had done and how they treated the players like, you know, one big family. And uh, as labor leaders, both Miller and he had the philosophy that you don't tell the players what to do. You respect them as individuals. You work with them. You show them the way you want to go. If they agree with it, you go that way. Um, and um, at the end of it, we were talking about philosophy. Um, he was a far more well-read person than I am. And he's a super intelligent guy. And to complete the story without making it too long, after my book came out, I uh, was the moderator at Temple Emmanuel, which is on Fifth Avenue, the biggest Jewish temple there is. I mean, the, it seats 2,000 people. A lot of famous people have belonged there. And on my panel was Alan Dershowitz, who's a good uh, friend, yep. was Ira Burkow, was Art Shamsky, who played for the Miracle oh, Mets. Oh, yeah, I know that name. And uh, the other person on that panel was, uh, I don't know, it'll come to me. It was an all, oh, yeah, it was Donald Fear. Uh -huh. Telling the story about Donald Fear. Yep. So Don, you know, had said to me that he would appear. Now, you know, these maybe there's a $1,000 honorar honorarium mm -hmm. that goes to, to the people on the panel. But he never took an honorarium ever for whatever he did. And I've had him on other panels. But he, he didn't think he would be in California, but he was in California at the time of this was coming up on a Sunday. Flew back to be, to keep his word to me, was on the panel, and then flew back to complete his business out there. And uh, so that's the, all on his own money. That's the kind, you know, that's the kind of guy Don Fear was. So both of these guys were remarkable. And and like with uh, Miller, Fear, who's, you know, not a vuncula like, um, like uh, Miller was, but is more, I would say, uh, you know, he's sort of austere, but he, he, he does great things and he's a wonderful guy. He, we became very good friends. I said to my wife, I said, imagine being... Being a good friend with Don Fear, my God, I mean, uh, what wonderful mm. things happen to you. You know, Ken, yeah. you're, a, you're a broadcaster. You meet people and you make friends that, uh, you know. Oh, I, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I had a – I mean, I, the stories that we could both tell about people. Um, Dick Clark uh, from American Bandstand, I had a chance to interview him. He was a wonderful guy. Yeah. And, and we stayed friends for a while. Raymond Burr. Yeah. 
Um, he and I were friends for, for a long time after we did our interview. He told me, he said, if I wanted to find out anything about my career, he said, all I got to do is call you. <laughs> I, I, and I loved it. Talk about Jerry Reinsdorf. Uh, is he the kind of guy who would support, do you think, and convince the owners that it's a black mark against them not to vote Miller into the Hall of Fame? No, because I think that Jerry Reinsdorf, uh, you know, he, uh, he made – I think Jerry Reinsdorf is, uh, you know, an unusual guy. I mean, uh, comes from Brooklyn. They didn't have – his family didn't have any money and – he went into real estate and he made a lot of money there and he's been the owner of the Bulls and the White Sox for a long time and, uh, you know, uh, one of the most famous guys in sports history, um, uh, the basketball player um, uh, that we're thinking of is... Uh, Jordan? Yeah, uh, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan? Yeah, I mean, he was with him and the picture in the book is uh, of Reinsdorf giving an award to Jim Tomey who was a great baseball player and played a little bit for Chicago. And Jerry is, uh, he's always been a very active owner with all the committees that uh, the Major League Baseball has set up. He was close as a friend uh, to Bud Selig. But his heart and soul was, was with the owners. And um, I think that uh, he considered that uh, Miller and then Fear were really the enemy um, and that they were going to take money from the owners by representing the players. And I think that he was strong in that way. Um, and he's, uh, but he's a formidable individual. I respect, uh, I, I respect him. And as a matter of fact, uh, when he walked into the room to be interviewed, I'd never met him before. And uh, this was in the Western office of, of MLB baseball and uh, in, where Selig would spend the winters. And um, so he comes into the room and the first thing he says to me, he says, he said, the only reason I'm doing this is because you're so goddamn persistent. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I said, well, you know, what I hear about you, Jerry, is that you're really a nice guy, even though everybody thinks you're a nasty guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see that Murray Chess wrote an article the other day about how you're really a nice guy. So that uh, he said, well, I am a nice guy. He said, my, I, I said, everybody likes my jokes except my wife, uh, who, <laughs> who doesn't laugh at my jokes. I said, hey. We have something in common. <laughs> so we got along. <laughs> I got a hunch, and I hope I'm wrong, that Marvin Miller will never be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and yet his picture is in the Supreme Court. Yeah, the, the, I told that story. That's a wonderful story. <clears throat> and uh, the tagline on that was uh, good, enough, good enough for the Supreme Court, but not good enough for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, and I... I that was very that, sad. It was very sad. Well, you know something? First of all, he may never be in the Hall of Fame, and maybe it's better that he never be in the Hall of Fame because his name will be more famous not being in the Hall of Fame just for the fact that he's not in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll just add to his uh, fame, uh, <laughs> and, and it will show that there is a certain, I don't know what the word is. I don't want to use too strong a word. But the fact that the owners are all together and uh, basically all together and keeping him out says something about money and says something about uh, American society and values. We have a lot of good values. We have other values that are questionable um, and can be, you know, discussed. Um, but uh, I think that um, I think that he may never be in the Hall of Fame. And that story, because he, he Arthur Goldberg was Supreme Court justice. Uh, and Marvin Miller worked together um, before and after 
Uh, Goldberg was the Supreme Court justice. He got off because Lyndon Johnson said to him he needed him at the United Nations. He never should have gotten off. But um, the, the, only lately and just before Ma uh, Marvin died, the, uh, NYU, um, oh, no, I guess it was G uh, George Mason University down in Washington, D.C., uh, who was involved in putting up oil paintings of the Supreme Court justices at the Supreme Court, decided they wanted to include Marvin Miller because he was so close to Arthur Goldberg. So he's the only non-justice, non-lawyer up on the walls of the Supreme Court. And I told that story. It went into the book at the last minute, and I called up maybe two weeks or three weeks before Marvin died and read it to him over the phone, and he was he was very touched by that. Um I understand that you have a rather good and great connection with Gordon Eads, who is a local sports writer here in Boston, about another book that is is about to come out soon on your memories and love affair of Fenway Park. Yeah, Gordon's a great guy. You know, I never I never met Gordon until recently, but uh, it, you know, you talk about guys you meet that you remember. Well, I remember yep. Gordon because before I met him, because I would read the Globe. And I, I've always found his sports columns more interesting than the other guys. He seemed to know more, and he has a great writing style, and he was very good writing for the Globe. And he had several other positions, I think, with ESPN and stuff like that. So anyway, um, what I was interested in, uh, I wrote this 50-page uh, memoir of my years at Fenway Park. It's sort of funny, and I was there at a lot of crucial games, and it just it's it's a personal memoir, and I never really thought of it for publication. But then, after I spent some time with it, I did. And to make a long story short, I wanted to see if the Red Sox might be interested in it. And uh, it got to Gordon Eads' uh, desk. And before I ever before I ever met Gordon, this is all within the last couple of months. Uh, what he did was write a two and a half page pre pre or a, you know a short little piece on the on the uh, memoir, which was, you know, like 50 pages long. And I looked at that memoir in amazement. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't have been amazed because I know Gordon's work, but I was amazed because I couldn't find anything wrong with it. Uh, I, I, in fact, I, everything was right about it. I said, how could this guy get all this stuff into two and a half pages to describe this thing so well that people will really want to read it? Um, you know, I looked at it and I said, I did I write all that? I, I think I'll go back and read it again. And um, so... Um, that was that was something right there. The only thing he misstated was my age. I mean, <laughs> he had me at eighty-seven, which hopefully I'll reach in another month. But as I think I said to him when I finally did meet him, I said, "86 is young, but 87 is old." <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, so I did meet Gordon, and he edited the memoir itself with about. 50 or 60 different edits. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. not only can he write, but he can edit. And uh, he made it much better from that point of view. But in my little lawyer's brain, um, I, uh, I thought of something that we, Oh, another thing is that at the very same time that the Red Sox, that Gordon and the Red Sox uh, became interested in that memoir, the, there's a baseball journal put out uh, called Nine, obviously Nine because of nine baseball players, and um, they liked the memoir, and they offered to publish the whole thing and uh, at the same time. So they're, uh, again, to make a long story short, I guess it's going to be in both places. 
And um, so I, so as I said, I thought to myself that, well, actually Gordon came up with a t- unbelievably great plan that might give a second life to the book we're talking about, American Jews in America's Game, mm-hmm. by by uh, his praise linking people up or directing them to my own website where the memoir would appear and the memoir would carry references to the book and suggest that if you like this, maybe you like the book even more, go out and buy the book. That was all Gordon's idea, basically, and he came up with that, which I, you know, was unbelievable. So that, um, and a, you know, he knows a few Yiddish words. He'd probably say, that's my Yiddish cop going. <laughs> so uh, so I owe a lot to Gordon. He's, he's a great guy. We, um, um, we gave... Uh, we gave a talk uh, to the uh, to the recent uh, convention of the uh, what is it called the uh, Hebrew Union or something like that. It's one of it's the biggest one of the biggest Jewish organizations in the country. Like about five thousand people coming in there, and uh, there were quite a few people there. And um, I overspoke a little at that one to Gordon's. Uh, consternation, um, but um, still it went it went okay. He's a wonderful speaker. He talked about the first Jewish Red Sox player, which uh, who was a guy that became a war hero. Uh, Moberg? No, not Moberg. Um, it was, um, my old memory is uh, failing me, um, but he was a war hero, became, and his wife divorced him before the war, but then during the war he uh, became a paraplegic, uh, war injury, and uh, his wife came back to remarry him afterwards, and he did a lot of great work afterwards. And it was a very touching story, and the people in the audience were absolutely wrapped in attention uh, hearing about this. Gordon knew the story uh, very, very closely and explicitly. So, um, so that you know, that was a nice experience as well. So, a lot of good things happening lately, and uh, I'd like this book to. Uh, to have another life because people seem to like it a lot, like like you tell me you do. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I enjoy in your book, there are three stories that I found very interesting regarding three Jewish individuals and Yom Kippur. And the people that I'm thinking of are Sandy Koufax, Murray Chas, and Ken Holzman. And I wish you would tell those stories. Yeah, I could tell you a little about that. Well, first of all, as far as Koufax was concerned, uh, you know, he was really an unbelievable pitcher. And if his pitching career hadn't been cut short, maybe he would be deemed not only one of the four or five greatest pitchers in baseball history, but the greatest pitcher. Because in his final, uh, you know, he had lack of control during several years of his major league career. But then when he found control, he became almost impossible to hit. Um, he sat out on the first game uh, of the 1965 Five. World Series between the Dodgers and the Twins um, because of Yom Kippur. And, um, you know, back in Greenberg's day, it shows you the difference between uh, the view of Jewish people then. Then when uh, Greenberg sat out for Yom Kippur, he was sort of attacked as not being true to his team. Um, you know, he should play. Um, but people, by the time in the 60s, after the war, they applauded, uh, uh, they applauded Sandy Koufax for doing that. 
And, you know, he came back and he lost, I think, uh, the third game of the series, uh, not because he was hit hard, but you run up against tough pitchers sometimes. But then he won the fifth game by a shutout and came back on two days rest to win the seventh game by a shutout. And that made him a real hero in American sports. And to this day, people remember that. And Sandy Koufax is thought to be the greatest Jewish star ever, but I really think that, uh, you know, my heart goes to Hank Greenberg. But I love Sandy Koufax and what he did. He was a man of real character. I've spoken to him several times, and uh, there is a funny story that goes along with that. Walter Ralston uh, had to find somebody else to pitch that first game, so he 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 found uh, that the, uh, the guy that should pitch was uh, Sandy's um, uh, Don Drysdale, Sandy's mate. The, they both had that big holdout where they challenged yep. the owners to pay them what they were worth before free agency. and uh, But he was hammered. And uh, so when Alston came out to get him in like, I don't know, the second inning, uh, Drysdale, who was a bit of a cut-up, said, boy, I bet you wish that uh, I was Jewish too. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. uh, then... Um, and, and, and Sandy did not, would not do an interview with you. No, he called me. Uh, I wanted to do an interview. I got to him through uh, Marty Appel, who was my uh, agent, um, who, you know, was a big, uh, he was, Marty was the public relations guy in his 20s for the Yankees and then served under, uh, uh, um, served under, you help me with that, you know, the guy that, the, 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 Convicted felon. Who, oh, oh, Murray Chess. No, no, no. Oh, the, George Steinbrenner. Yeah, Steinbrenner. And uh, but Steinbrenner was, uh, you know, uh, a, t- a tough owner to work for, but a very, yeah. but a very effective owner. And what I found out doing this book was that a lot of people really liked uh, Steinbrenner. Um, you might think not, but uh, because he was a tough guy. But a lot of people did like him. And in any event, um, uh, yeah, Marty Appel had a, a history from early on. And he got me through to Sandy Koufax, called me on a Saturday morning, and I pick up the phone, a deep voice says, this is Sandy Koufax. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm calling to say that, um, I, you know, I, I really don't want to do an interview. I don't do interviews very infrequently. Anyway, we had a, like a 15-minute conversation, and it became Sandy and Larry, and I'm thinking of everything. <laughs> I said, well, Sandy, you don't have, we don't have to meet. You can write it, and I'll put it in the book, or you can send it up and record it. Nothing, nothing. And um, but as the conversation went on, I found enough in the conversation to write a story about him with the help of uh, his catcher, um, uh, Norm Sherry, who was the one who was credited with finding control for Sandy Koufax. So it, it all worked out. All right. Murray Chass. Yeah, Murray Chass was he, – he claimed not to be an orthodox – well, first of all, Murray Chass, for anybody who doesn't, might not be familiar with the name, uh, was a uh, sports columnist for the New York Times for many years and was extremely popular in New York City. And um, so that uh, Murray um, – although he claimed not to be orthodox, he, he usually went to Temple on a Saturday and he was assigned – at that time, he wasn't working for the New York Times. I, I think he was working for one of the presses, and uh, I, uh, he um, he was told to cover that particular game, and he couldn't go to the game, but he had many friends among the sports writers, and what he did, he, he found near the hotel where he was staying 
a businessman's temple where I guess Jewish guys, uh, workers, uh, office people, executives went sometimes. Uh, but that, on that particular day, a Saturday, nobody was there because nobody was working in the middle of the city. So he went there and that's where he spent his uh, and I guess it was Yom Kippur, yeah. So I'm um, sorry. So he spent not just the Sabbath, but Yom Kippur. So he spent the day there, and then all his friends gave him the story of the game, which, by the way, was the game that Bob Gibson pitched and struck out, I think, seventeen tigers. And that was, and they wrote the story for him, and he filed the story. <laughs> so that's how Murray Chass appeared uh, with a with a good story that particular day. Um, so that was his Yom Kippur experience. He found he found a way to write the story, even though he didn't attend the game and, Not was, in, bad. and was in Temple all day. Yeah, Pretty I good thought, thinking. I thought that was very good. Yeah, I like that. Then uh, the other one was, uh, oh, yeah. Ken Holzman. Ken Holzman won more games than Sandy Koufax. He's the biggest winner, uh, biggest Jewish winner in baseball history. <laughs> um, well, he, he played longer. I mean, Sandy Koufax's career was cut short. Yeah. But, you know, um, he was a very interesting guy to interview. Where did I interview him? I interviewed him in the lobby of the Dan Panorama Hotel <laughs> in Israel uh, in Tel Aviv on the shores of the Mediterranean where Marty Appel got me to go for the opening and closing season of the Israel Baseball League. And the managers in the league were former Jewish major leaguers like uh, the guy that I mentioned before, Rod Shamsky and uh, Holzman himself and uh, uh, Norm, Bloomberg, Norm Bloomberg, I mean, uh, yeah, Ron Bloomberg. Oh, yeah. So anyway, um, what happened first designated is, hitter. Uh, designated, right. De first designated hitter ever. Right, yep. you got it. Yep. And uh, <laughs> so what happened is that uh, uh, it, it's, we... I interviewed him, and he tells me this story about the playoff, uh, the end of the season. Uh, he's playing for the uh, Oakland Athletics in there, and their, their foe is Baltimore. So he goes to Dick Williams, and it so happened, Dick Williams laid out the pitching schedule. Vida Blue was the other great pitcher on that staff. And, of course, you know, um, we're talking about uh, a fellow here, Ken Holtzman, who won 180-odd games and uh, pitched a no-hitter and uh, won five or six World Series game. He was a hell of a, a pitcher. He really was. And he had a real good work ethic. So what happened is that uh, he um, said to Williams, he said, I, you know, I can't pitch when you got me assigned because that's Yom Kippur. So he's back in his hotel room on Yom Kippur and he wants to go to Temple. So he calls up uh, the Chamber of Commerce and they refer him to somebody and he gets a phone call back. We're going to pick you up in a few minutes. We're going to take you to the one of the one of the nicest temples. So a limousine comes, picks him up, and takes him to a temple. The the rabbi comes out on the front steps and greets him. Says, "Let me take you to your seat." Takes him to the seat. The seat's in the front of the temple. There's a family down there, and there's the father. Turns out to be Jerry Hofberg, Hofberger, or Hofberg, Hofberger. Hofberger, who owns the Orioles. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I know the name well. Yeah. Right. So that I guess it was beer or something like that. So yeah. anyway, so Hofberger says, welcome, Ken. And he not only does he attend the service, but he says, well, come on, we're going to take you home for a dinner after, you know, one sundown. 
and uh, when the holiday is over. So he has a terrific meal that day. That night, they make friends. Uh, Hofberger's family, his wife. I think there were. I think uh, there were two boys and a girl, or two girls and a boy, the children. And so he comes back to the ballpark the next day, and he said, "Well, Dick, I you know I got to tell you that what happened." And he told him what happened. And Williams, who's not known for a terrific uh, uh, to be a, a terrifically friendly guy, but he was a great manager. But in this particular occasion, he said. That's that's okay, you know that, that that's fine. Um, give you an extra day of rest anyway. And as a matter of fact, the series went back to Oakland, and he did have that extra day of rest, mm-hmm. and he beat the Orioles. That's <laughs> <laughs> kind of funny. I wonder and, what Hofberger would have said later on. Well, Hofberger sounds like he must have been a nice guy. Yeah, he probably said, "Well, that's the way the cookie crumbles." And and there's also a great story in there about Holtzman pitching against. Sandy Koufax. Yeah, right. The last loss, the last loss in Koufax's career at the end of his last season in 1966, maybe? That was it, yeah. Yeah, was it was when Holtzman was like a rookie or a second-year player, and they pitched against each other, and they went nine innings, uh, and uh, it was still 0-0. Zero to zero. And Holtzman ultimately won the game, I think, in the 10th inning, 2-1 to one or something like that. And I think that it, he pitched like a one-hitter, and uh, and Koufax pitched as well. It was just, you know, somebody has to win the ball game. So Holtzman's mother and father were there, and his mother loved Sandy Koufax. <laughs> I mean, you know, the women loved Sandy Koufax. I mean, <laughs> he was so handsome, speaking about he was really good-looking. And um, so uh, Ken comes out, and he's— Proudest punch, he won the game. And he said, well, what'd you think of them? You know, beat Sandy Koufax. She said, I was praying for both of you. <laughs> and Ken Olsman said, even my mother didn't want me to win against Sandy Koufax. You talk about Bud Selig in here. And it's my impression that you think he is the greatest commissioner of all time. Is that correct? No, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, he, yeah, he he may have been. Well, you know, the history of commissioners of baseball is kind of fraught. I mean, Landis, Landis did what they wanted him to do and cleaned up baseball, but he really uh, he destroyed the careers of several of these guys. Um, Joe Jackson, uh, I don't know how I don't know how yeah, much Black he, Sox scandal. Yeah, 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 the Black Sox scandal, and I don't know. How, I mean, that's why the owners hired him. Uh, and the Black Sox scandal certainly was a mark on the game. And as a matter of fact, the guy that engineered the whole thing was a bad Jewish guy, uh, you the know, Gandalf? Arnold Rothstein. Oh, Rothstein, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and he's the guy that was behind it all with his sidekick, the former boxing champion Abe Attell, was that his name? Yeah, that's it, yeah. And yeah. Uh, Abe Attell was the front man on this deal. And, you know, as far as Jackson was, I mean, some of these guys— Eddie Sicotti, however you pronounce his name, C-I-C-O-T-E, was a great pitcher, and he won 29 games that season, but stunk in the World Series, so we can think that he might have been on it. But Joe Jackson hit 375 and set a record for hits in a World Series with 12. So if he was throwing them, maybe he would have had 18 hits. And uh, so... uh, but he was a tough. He was a t- he was a racist, and he was a tough commissioner. He never would have done anything that would have allowed blacks into baseball. 
I think that uh, there were some good commissioners, but uh, Selig was a peacemaker, and uh, he had learned from his father the the idea of uh, making peace. And as a matter of fact, uh, he um, he got the present president of the Yankees, who has been for some time, who's also in the book, Randy Randy uh, Levine, yeah. to uh, intercede uh, and negotiate with Don Fear. And in the late 90s, that was the last time there's been any strikes or anything like that. So something happened to – I don't think they uh, they love each other on either side of this argument, but at least they're not taking baseball away in the middle of the season and so that there's no completion of the season or no World Series as happened in one of those years in the 1990s. 94. 94, was it? Okay. Yeah, I'll never forget it. Never because that was – the only time in my lifetime that was no World Series. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it, was, it, was nice. it was awful. Yeah, it was awful. So that, you know, I think Selig has to be credited. Uh, and he's, he came up with a lot of things like the World Baseball Classic and some new rules. And some of them are good, some of them are bad. But I think uh, essentially Selig was interested in doing the right thing, if that's the right expression. And uh, he looked, he was very nice to me. He wrote the, uh, the, uh, uh, Forward to my book. Who could complain about that? <laughs> and um, he then when he came to Boston for the last World Series the Red Sox were in, his uh, his public relations guy um, got in touch with me and said, "Here's a photo opportunity. I've never had one." So I was there and I took a photo with uh, with Selig. And then afterwards, uh, Pat uh, said to me that um, he he knew from all the pictures he had seen Selig take that. He knew when he enjoyed taking a picture, and he said he, he liked taking the picture with you. So, yeah, that was nice. We all judge commissioners or different parts of baseball in different ways. I've been a baseball fan since I was eight years old. Granted, the owners are making boatloads of money. Ball players are getting contracts that I despise. For example, um, Jacoby Ellsbury. They're paying him, the Yankees are paying him a huge amount of money, and he's only a part-time player. But I, I, I don't like that. I don't like the fact that this year's baseball season will start the 29th of March and will probably go to the end of October. If I were a commissioner, I would want to see double headers reinstituted. I want games to start earlier in the playoffs in the World Series. I don't want to have to sit up till quarter or nine just to have a game start. That, to me, is not good for baseball. Well, you know, I agree with you uh, for the most, uh, for practically everything you just said because I found baseball to be much more attractive as a spectator sport uh, all the way through the 20th century. I think now the ballpark is too loud, the games are too long, um, and the players... I don't know if they're paid too much because we do have a laissez-faire <laughs> type of economic system and these guys bring the people into the ballparks. But I think that, uh, you know, I, I really used to love going out to the ballpark and I write a lot about that mm -hmm. in this uh, memoir that I talk about. But going out to the, um, you know, it's a hard game to destroy. <laughs> um, baseball is a wonderful game. It's unlike the up and down games with a goal at either end. Um, it's a unique game. Uh, and uh, but it, it could use some brushing up along the lines that you suggest. Um, you know, I just uh, it's taken a certain course, and uh, football may destroy itself because of these head injuries. I don't know. Uh, 
And baseball may ultimately destroy itself because of uh, greed. Um, I just, you know, up until the 90s, you know, you could get a box seat for 20 bucks or 25 bucks. Yep. Now it's it's horrendous. I mean, in in an era of big screen, high definition television, you can't. It's I mean, it's like music. I'm writing a book about music now. Well, you can't appreciate a concert on the best of uh, equipment. And the I mean, being there is a totally different experience, and being at the ballpark is a totally different experience. But if there's enough. At the ballpark, or whether it's football or baseball or even a concert, to uh, to drive you home, you'll choose to stay at home. <laughs> well, it could be the price of the ticket. It could be a lot of things. So that, um, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm really loving doing this book about music. Yeah, I was going to get into that. Um, you, you told me you met— Charles Dutrois. No, Previn. Oh, yeah, Previn. Andre Previn. Yeah. A little different from baseball. Yeah, but, but tell me about this book. Well, you know, I'll tell you about both of them as long as I mention Dutrois' name. <laughs> you know, Dutrois is a, uh, you know, he's been all over the papers the last several weeks in this sexual harassment stuff. And uh, he probably was one of the two or three greatest conductors in the world by the time this happened. He's already 80 or 81 years old. I was just telling my wife this morning that the last thing I heard him conduct which was uh, Hector Berlioz's uh, Damnation of Faust, was maybe what requires a huge chorus and a huge orchestra and soloist was maybe the best thing I'd ever heard him conduct. And he's conducted many things, famous for the French repertoire, and a very nice guy. And uh, But this destroys him. He'll never get back on the podium again. And, um, you know, it's interesting to compare that to Bruce Dean's quotes in The Globe the other day, the guy that used to be the head honcho over at uh, the Loeb in Cambridge Theater um, that uh, saying, you know, one thing is a person's art or capability and another thing is those that have been accused of sexual harassment have done great things. Should we dismiss them as artists even though they have this blood on their records as people? And, you know, I'm not going to try and answer that question this is not the place, but it's yep. it, it's a it's a serious question because I found Dutrois to be a very charming individual. Mm-hmm. Now Andre Previn was one of my since I go back all the way to when <laughs> he was uh, he's two years older than I am, and uh, his Hollywood passed when he escaped the you know he grew up in Germany and escaped the his parents got out before the Holocaust and he came and they settled in Hollywood. And by the, before he was out of his teens, he was an arranger and a composer, and a, he was winning Academy Awards in his 20s. And then he made the very, very, rather brave decision to follow his real stuff. And he became a great jazz musician and a pianist. Uh, yeah, and uh, then he, he decided he wanted to do classical. So that this guy's chops are unbelievable. I mean, as a composer, a classical composer, a pop composer, a jazz pianist, a uh, classical pianist and um so to me uh and he's still composing classical and to me uh and a lot of people don't know his name because they're not within his living memory although he did con- conduct the Boston Symphony within the last 10 years several times but um he, he's now uh illness challenged and he was married uh, early in the uh, in the 2000s to Anne Sophie Mutier German who's one of the great violinists in the world, 
So I wanted to interview her and got in touch with her, and she invited me to come to the hotel she was staying at, which is right outside of Tanglewood this past summer. And it's well known that even though they divorced uh, around 2010, they remained very friendly, and she's a wonderful woman. Um, and uh, she obviously has a deep friendship uh, with Andre, who still writes music for her and considers her the greatest violinist in the world. Um, so on that occasion, while I'm interviewing at this Al Fresco lunch uh, with uh, uh, Anne Sophie, um, she mentions that Andre is here. I said, oh, my God, I hope I can get to meet him. And uh, before the day was out, after the interview was over, I did meet him. And I'm in contact with him and hoping to interview him where he lives down in New York because he's sort of not necessarily indispensable, but very much very desirable as an interviewee about whom I can write a story to complete this picture of, of uh, this book is trying to get into the psyche of composers and musicians, famous people, to find out what goes on in their heads, especially the composers, to allow them to be able to create such beautiful things. And um, so I don't know. I'm not a musician. I don't know an awful lot about musical technicality, but I know a lot about musical history. And I've been able to connect with these people and uh, make friends with them. And uh, it's a wonderful experience. And, you know, in a society like ours, a lot of these people I've met are musicians are don't seem to be overly aggressive. They're very interested in working together in uh, uh, companionship and collaboration. So it's interesting to to meet these people. Mm -hmm. I I know exactly what you're what you're talking about uh, as far as meeting people is concerned, and I classify you as as one of those people. I loved your book, and it has been a real kick for me to be able to sit down and sit across from you and and talk to you about all these things. It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it and hope that this musical book will be available for us to read as well. I can't thank you enough for coming in here and spending an hour. It, it, it's just been a, a great hour, and uh, I thank you so very, very much. Well, Ken, I want to thank you too because, um, I, you know, I, I probably uh, spoke too much and because, you know, I know from questions you asked and comments you made that your knowledge in many things goes beyond mine. <laughs> and, and when I read your, uh, when I read your uh, biography and realize all the things you've done since you came to Boston, uh, I'm incredulous um, th that you've uh, uh, been able to accomplish so much, especially as a sightless person. Um, and uh, you, I guess you've developed your memory uh, to a fine point, <laughs> and uh, you know, I read about all these things. You know, you ask, people would ask uh, when they wanted to connect with somebody, you'd get them right away because filed away in your brain was their telephone <laughs> number. So, uh, and now um, in our conversations before this interview, and now I, um, I, uh, you know, recognize what a great history you've had, and uh, and it's an honor to be on to be questioned by you. Well, I appreciate that, and I feel the same about you. And if there's if there's ever anything I can do for you or with you in the future, please 
give me a call or send me an email. I would be very happy to do whatever I could with you. Well, well you're speaking to the wrong guy because I'm able, <laughs> <laughs> I'm able to take advantage of that. Oh no, tomorrow. absolutely. <laughs> if there, but please uh, listen. I I I enjoy good books, uh, and I enjoyed that one particularly. And I again, it was a, it was an honor to have you here. And hopefully we can do this again another time on another book. Well, thanks very much, Ken. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. So long, everybody.